Hello folks and welcome back. This is Simon Ward and you're listening to the High Performance Human Podcast. I'd like to guide you on a journey to living longer and living healthier through improved sleep, nutrition, fitness, mobility and stress management. Of course, the side benefit is that you'll also be improving your athletic performance. In the next few weeks, we'll be launching our very first High Performance Human course and we're currently taking applications for the beta version, which will last for six weeks with an investment of just 200 pounds per person, which is significantly below the final cost when the full course is up and running. If you're interested in joining me on this journey, you can get more information by emailing beth at the triathloncoach.com or please look for the link in the show notes below. Now, on today's podcast, if you want to fulfill your life ambitions as a human being, never mind an athlete, you need to have a strong heart and cardiovascular system. As endurance athletes, we spend an awful lot of time on improving the oxygen transport system, the heart, the lungs, blood and the blood vessels so that we can supply more oxygen to the muscles and with the ultimate goal of going faster and stronger and longer. Sadly, the heart is like any other machine and it occasionally ceases to function exactly as it should and endurance athletes are not immune from heart problems, although perhaps we'd like to think that we are. So, in today's call, I'm delighted to be chatting with Professor Graham Stewart, a cardiologist who has a research interest in exercise and heart disease and has worked in sports cardiology for over 10 years. Professor Stewart has an MSc in sports and exercise medicine from the University of Exeter and is currently engaged as a consultant cardiologist in Bristol, where he also specialises in congenital heart disease and cardiac arrhythmias, having done so for over 25 years. He's also the Medical Director of Sports Cardiology UK and he's a keen and, in his words, not very speedy long-distance triathlete. In this episode, the Professor shares his wisdom on all matters around this subject and he outlines how we can all make sure that we take care of this most precious of organs. And we'll cover topics including a 101 on how the heart works, as Professor Stewart explains what really happens during acute and chronic exercise why regular exercise is a good thing but doesn't guarantee immunity from heart problems, ageing, exercise and the heart, and when and why you should get a checkup, atrial flutters, atrial fibrillation and palpitations, what's the difference, what causes them and when you should be concerned. The real reason why some athletes pass away during endurance events and why you shouldn't be worried, why females are less likely to have heart issues than males, why you should aim for an average of 8-10 to 10 hours training each week and why full-time athletes can get away with doing more, stress, its impact on the heart and why it's important to find time in our day to de-stress and finally we wrap up with everyday actions that you can take to improve and maintain heart health. So without further ado let's crack on with today's guest. So welcome to the High Performance Human Podcast, Professor Graham Stewart. Hi, welcome. Nice to meet you. So as an endurance athlete, I guess we share lots of things, one of which is uh, being concerned about a healthy heart. But um, also you were recommended to me by a friend of mine who uh, um, we probably shouldn't divulge his name for patient confidentiality, but he suggested that you would be an excellent person to chat with about the endurance athlete's heart. Um, because of your professional work and your particular interest in this subject. So uh, glad you could join us on the show, because I'm sure this is something that's uppermost in the mind of our listeners, particularly as they get on a little bit. Great. Yeah, no, it's a, uh, thank you very much for inviting me. So, Professor, how do you, how do you get to the stage? What, what was your journey to get to that level? Um, you know, did you start out wanting to go into medicine? Uh, gosh, when I was looking at careers, that there were... Uh, there weren't the great variety of options open to us that there are nowadays. So my children yeah. have all got vastly different careers. But uh, no, I, 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 I was academically competitive and that meant law, vet medicine or, or medicine. And I would read the James Herriot books and didn't fancy <laughs> putting my, my arm all the way up the backside of a cow. And as far as I was concerned, lawyers were in offices. So that left medicine. So that was the level of of uh, selectivity and thought that went into it. Not that I regret the decision. Okay, so you go into medicine. It starts out with you being a generalist, doesn't it, and getting a feel for everything. And then how do you sort of make your way down the sort of cardiac um, route? 
Yeah, so I um, I did some research when I was up in Newcastle. At that point, I was working primarily with children, and I was looking at children's brains. And uh, when you do heart surgery on a child, you stop the circulation. And so I was looking at what happened to the blood flow to the brain. And as I went through it, um, I thought that neurology, the study of the brain, is very similar to cardiology, although in cardiology, there seem to be rather more treatments. And so I, I moved from my research post to from aiming to be a neurologist to becoming a cardiologist. Uh, and that's where it started. So I then trained in pediatric and adult cardiology and then specialized as a congenital heart cardiologist. So I, I went to uh, University Hospital of Wales in Cardiff in 1993 as a consultant, and we were setting up a new unit, and which we did very successfully uh, for Wales. And then six years later, I moved across to the Bristol unit, which at the time was going through a very difficult uh, review of its services, which were were um, under the, under the great scrutiny for poor mm-hmm. results. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I was I, my remit was to set up a service for not just children but adults with congenital heart disease, so children that live to adult life. And my interventional interest was in arrhythmias, so abnormalities of the heart rhythm. And as a keen, albeit not very talented athlete, I'd always run and cycle and things, I was interested in the whole issue of why some athletes suddenly come to grief in the sports field. Mm. And I would see clinically people who had survived cardiac arrest in the sports field. And that led me to looking at um, what the conditions were, which are mostly inherited cardiac conditions, which was a relatively new specialty. So I, I developed my interest into that sort of area. And I also, I did a master's in sports and exercise medicine in the University of Bath and Exeter. And learned a bit more about, about sport and exercise because medical students are not taught any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Even now, they're not taught about exercise physiology. And for the last 15 years or so, I've, I've run a small company and I'm, uh, called Sports Cardiology UK. And on Mondays and occasionally Fridays, I will see athletes with heart problems or heart issues as well as seeing them clinically in my NHS practice. Uh, I've subsequently developed a research interest in the use of exercise as a treatment for patients with complex heart disease, which we can mm. move on to another time. Just for clarification, then, congenital is something you're born with, right? Yeah. Um, as opposed to something you might develop as you are, um, as you're getting older or, you know, the, the, basically the heart muscle or the engine of the body just gets a bit tired through like, like any engine does. Exactly, yeah. So, and, and you know, what makes us who we are is a mixture of the environment and a mixture of our genetics. Mm-hmm. So, choose your parents carefully. Is the uh, that's 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 a phrase often used by Olympic medalists, isn't it? Or those who don't don't make it to Olympics, saying that they didn't choose their parents well enough. Um, and and that's, that's I guess that's what we as coaches talk about is nature versus nurture. And one of the questions that I guess get asked as a coach is, will this be good for my heart? Will this be bad for my heart? Should I particularly, you know, I'm, I'm 57 now and I've got a lot of athletes that I work with, um, recreational athletes who are either coming up to that age or a little bit older, who are asking, should, should I be high intensity exercise? That's very popular at the moment, high intensity interval training. Should I be doing that, Simon? It'll, it'll help me go faster maybe, but will it be good for my heart? Um, I can remember a friend of mine who... Um, developing some symptoms during Ironman France. So that's on the promenade in Nice, running along there, very hot. Um, It was a very hot day. He was probably dehydrated and suddenly feeling more out of breath than he should have been and actually decided to quit the race on the advice of another friend of ours who was racing, who passed him, who was a a paramedic and said, you know what, Andy, if you're not sure, stop at the next um, aid station and see the medics. And so he he went back to the apartment we were staying in. Uh, When we got back, he was fast asleep, but he did look a bit grey. But by the evening, he seemed to have perked up and he had a couple of glasses of wine and he was okay. But we we persuaded him to go and see a cardiologist when he got back to Leeds and subsequently needed to have uh, three stents. And the surgeon said to him, you're the luckiest man I've seen alive. And he said, oh, I don't understand what you mean by that. He said, well, most of the others in your condition haven't been alive. Um, and, and then we found out that he said, well, I've, I've been having these pains in my chest for a couple more Ironmans, you know, going back two or three years. So it wasn't a problem that came on at that race. But of course, what, what that led to was 
quite a lot of our group that were cycling and running and were the same age saying, well, do I need to go and get checked out now? Is there any chance that I could have a problem with my heart? And uh, I think a lot of the problems with, with this friend was from his previous lifestyle before he started cycling and running that he, he then perhaps they, actually his training had helped him um, to maintain a, a healthyish heart for longer. But, but still, um, these are questions I get asked all the time. And of course, I'm, I'm not an expert. So I, I try to find people like yourself, Graham, and uh, get them to help me answer the question. So um, maybe we can delve into some of those a little bit more today and uh, um, yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, the, there are there's a lot of common sense involved. Um, the first point is that exercise. Most people do not exercise nearly enough, and there's overwhelming evidence that exercise has got multiple benefits, not just for the heart, but for the skeletal system, for the uh, for the lungs, for the reduces your likelihood of cancer, improves your lipid profile, reduces your likelihood of diabetes, all sorts of things, and in fact for for middle-aged men, the amount you exercise uh, can correlate to the likelihood of developing dementia in old age. So there's lots of really, really strong evidence coming out all the time about the benefits of exercise. The question is, if, if say, you are a middle-aged man and you want to suddenly take up exercise after not having done it for a while, well, there are some things to be aware of. So if your father had a heart attack at 40 and your uncle had a heart attack at 40, then you should definitely be being checked. Mm. If uh, you used to smoke a lot or if you'd led a very unhealthy lifestyle, then you should be being checked. And the European Society of Cardiology would recommend that that all people at, at that sort of stage in life who are taking up exercise should go through a certain uh, sort of screening process. You know, do you have exercise-related symptoms such as palpitations, chest pain, for example? Mm. Uh, do you have a family history of somebody who might have had an exercise-related problem? And all these things. And, and so in some countries, such as Italy, by law, you have to have a two-year sports cardiology screen every, if you're doing competitive exercise. Mm. Uh, that's up to the age of 35. After that, it, it, it varies a bit. So, yes, I mean, I think you know, common sense things, but for most people, the problem is not doing too much exercise, it's doing too little. In the case of the triathletes and ultra runners listening to that, of course, doing too much exercise or doing too little exercise probably doesn't count. And um, one of the questions I, I get asked, and again, I'm I'm not sure if I have a, a definitive answer, is is there, is there such a thing as doing too much exercise? And can we go, you know, there's a, there's the bell curve, isn't there? We've got the not enough on here. Then we've got the 80% in the middle. Then we've got this bit over here where we've gone over what's a good amount of exercise and it actually can, can start to increase our risk again. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, Ironman triathlon is quite a good example because uh, I am, I'm the survivor of two Ironman triathlons and I know exactly how hard it is and it's hard. Um, and if you look at somebody's ultrasound scan of their heart at the end of a triathlon, an Ironman triathlon, the right ventricle will be large and the left ventricle will be small, smaller than normal. And if you measure a substance called troponin in the bloodstream, which is what's leaked out from myocardial cells, heart muscle cells, that will be elevated to the equivalent level of somebody who's just had a heart attack. Mm. That tells you that this is really significant exercise. I think of it a bit like if you're if you've run too much and your legs are just really aching, your heart's just a muscle. You've probably done the same sort of thing. Um, how long does that elevated level of troponin last for then? Post well, there's great debate about this as to whether it's a sign of heart muscle cell damage or whether it's it's uh, only in certain individuals. For example, those who haven't trained too much or those who had underlying problems. Right. Um, but it lasts. It lasts for usually a matter of hours. Because uh, uh, if you take away the exercise stress, then it disappears. The right heart usually gets smaller in a couple of days, but in some people it takes several weeks. And so there is individual variation. Well, maybe maybe we should um, have uh, sort of rewind a little bit then, have a little bit of a, a 101 on how the heart works. Because part, and So pardon my ignorance here. Right ventricle is where the blood goes from to the lungs to pick up oxygen. Then it comes back to the left atrium. Then it goes to the left ventricle, and that's when it gets pumped out to the body. So my understanding was that with regular exercise, the left ventricle is like any other muscle. It responds to that, and it grows. And so most endurance athletes have a larger-than-normal left ventricle. Yeah. But what you're saying here, 
And so now I'm struggling to understand whether this is a permanent thing or temporary is that the right ventricle is larger and the left ventricle is smaller. Yeah. So what, what happens, um, there's the, if you lift, um, lift, lift heavy weights with your arms, your arm muscle gets thicker. Mm-hmm. If you do a lot of, uh, endurance, uh, exercise, your left ventricle gets bigger because, so basically the heart's two pumps side by side each with the top chamber, the atrium, bottom chamber, ventricle. One pump is a low pressure, sending blood from the right ventricle to the pulmonary artery to the lungs. And the other pump is at much higher pressure, so three or four times the pressure, well, actually even higher than that, and sending blood from the body, uh, sorry, from the lungs back out to the body. So you've got blue blood being pumped to the lungs, it's given oxygen, comes back to the left side, gets pumped around the body, the oxygen's used up, and so it goes on. So by training you develop uh, a bigger uh, heart, which has got thicker muscle. And that's so-called athlete's heart. And that's a normal uh, response to exercise. So that's the sort of gradual response to training. The acute response to extreme exercise, which is what the Ironman triathlon is, is slightly different because when you do uh, extreme exercise, um, such as a really tough, long, long-distance endurance type, uh, episode, then the pulmonary artery pressure, the pressure in the lungs climbs, or the resistance actually climbs, which in turn leads to the pressure climbing. And that's why the right ventricle, which is designed to pump at low pressure, has to pump at much higher pressure for quite a long time. So if you're doing uh, your Ironman triathlon, it takes you 14 hours, you have 14 hours of high pressure that your right ventricle is pumping against. And your left ventricle tends to get small because almost always you haven't been able to take on enough fluids, you're a bit dehydrated. So that's why you get the discrepancy. Okay. But I mean, for most people, the, the, it's not a problem. But the, there is, as you pointed out earlier, there's a U-shaped mortality and morbidity curve with exercise. In other words, if you're sedentary and you're doing no exercise, your mortality's up at 8 out of 10, say. If you exercise, it goes down and down and down until you reach a certain point at which it starts to climb again when you start doing exercise that actually raises your mortality. And the sweet point seems to be about eight, nine, 10 hours a week. So once you're above that, you're still much, much better than the sedentary guy. But if you're up at 30 hours a week, you know that's taking you into the higher morbidity area. Morbidity just means side effects or complications. Mm. But not many of us are doing 30 hours a week, but some are. Yeah, and uh, certainly a lot of the pros that are doing um Ironman uh, are probably in that level for for a fair few years as well, I would think. Yeah, the difference with the pros are, so the the pros will maybe exercise two or three times a day, but they'll also have a sleep in the middle of the day. They'll have physio, they'll have massage, whereas the average uh, Joe Bloggs, who's completing at quite a high age group standard, Mm. he's still got a job, uh, which he's got to go to. So he's getting up at five in the morning to go out on his bike, et cetera, et cetera. It's the rest that's important as well. So, so there's another important thing concerning the environment, isn't it? Is that uh, your pro athletes are doing more work, which uh, more more load, more training load, which might make them uh, give, give them a higher risk. But then they don't have the same other life stresses because that's all they're doing, and so they the rest of their life could be geared towards recovering from that training. They take time off. They tend to, and this is something I'd like to talk about in more in more detail a bit later on. But they can probably get into the parasympathetic state, rest and digest far more than somebody who has a an hour's run at lunchtime and then has to rush back to work and then get on with the stress of running the business and then goes to pick up the kids, does a session in the evening and then goes to bed late so that they're never actually getting out of the sympathetic state. Yeah, no, I think I think that that's that's true. That's absolutely true. Mm. So we talked about acute responses to exercise. Uh, somebody saw my resting heart rate recently and um, it's, it's uh, on average, it's around 40 um, during sleep. And I know when I've been to have minor operations on my knees, I always have to let the anaesthetist know that I have a naturally low resting heart rate. Um, and I guess that's uh, as a result of my heart getting stronger and my cardiac output growing. But can you talk through the mechanism of what happens as a chronic response to exercise? Yeah, so, I mean, heart rate's an interesting example. So uh, people who do a lot of endurance athlete, uh, uh, athletic activity as opposed to um, burst athletics, um, they do tend to have lower heart rates. And there's two reasons for that. The, the one reason is that you've, you mentioned parasympathetic and sympathetic. So sympathetic being the adrenaline state, the fight and flight. 
parasympathetic is mediated by a nerve called the vagus nerve that slows everything down and drops the blood pressure. And we're all a, a constant flow between sympathetic and parasympathetic. Some people tend to be more parasympathetic. They're the sort of fainters and others are more uh, sympathetic and they're the ones that are constantly on edge and with a higher heart rate. Mm. When you exercise, you increase your parasympathetic drive. And for many years, we used to think that that was the reason why athletes had slow heart rates. But some colleagues in Manchester have done some great work, um, initially in animals and then subsequently in humans, and shown that actually it's not the parasympathetic drive. That's, that's, that's a part of it. A much bigger one is related to something called your IKF channels, which are um, channels that allow uh, salts to flow in and out of the heart muscle cell. And you downregulate your IKF channels. They're called the funny channels. Downregulate your funny channels by exercising. And that slows your heart rate. And that makes sense because if you've a bigger heart, because you've, your mus heart muscle's bigger and the volume's bigger, you don't need to be pumping it so frequently to get the same cardiac output. And there's a genetic variation into how much your IKF channels fall. So some people will naturally have slow heart rates. And if you exercise, you'll drop it down further. So I've seen uh, endurance athletes who've had to have pacemakers because their heart rates are in their low 30s or 20s sometimes mm. um and because they get dizzy they're fine if they're running but if they're not running then they they're falling over and that, that's not that uncommon that reminds me of that film with jason statham where he has to keep his heart rate at a certain amount to stay alive and so he's constantly racing around drinking coffee and uh, doing all sorts of other activities that elevate his heart rate but but we, we don't want we don't want to be in that state do we because that's that's definitely not a healthy uh, absolutely um, state of cardiac function so there is a point then at which a low resting heart rate becomes too low. I mean, I've seen I've seen some of the reports about the Belgian cyclists who've sort of passed away in their sleep, and I guess part of that was due to um, the blood being a little thicker than it should have been through through other substances. But um, still, I guess when you're asleep and you're lying horizontal, um, there's a point at which the heart can't pump the blood to the vital organs. Yeah, so I mean, yourself. Your, your heart rate your heart rate does fall when you're asleep. In fact, quite often the heart rate, the heart will stop when you're asleep. It may stop for a few seconds, sometimes quite a few seconds. If you're deeply asleep, that's okay. Um, it seldom causes a problem. If you're walking around, it's not okay because you tend to pass out. Um, so, yeah, it can. For some people, it can be a problem. But the, for the vast majority, it's a normal compensatory reaction and it's an appropriate reaction. So, what for, for athletes then, what would we be? What would be healthy resting heart rate? Somewhere between forty and sixty. I see that the, the, the they often say the average resting heart rate for a, uh, you know the average human being is around sixty to eighty. I think, isn't it? So, um, forty to sixty for athletes would be. Uh, I mean, as long as it's not causing symptoms, it doesn't really matter what it is. Um, and you know, the 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 bigger the animal, the slower the heart rate generally, and that's that's true in nature, and it's probably true in man as well. Um, one of the downsides of having a slow heart rate and one of the downsides actually of being a, a big athlete is a big endurance athlete is that there's a slightly increased risk, not just of the slow heart rate causing symptoms, but of developing an escape rhythm in the heart called atrial fibrillation. And so atrial fibrillation is where the top chambers go into a very rapid rate of 400, 500 beats a minute. And that's associated with stretch of the atrium, which is one of the consequences of long-term endurance exercise it's also associated with low heart rates and so somebody who does long-term endurance exercise uh, has a higher chance probably four or five times higher than the average sedentary broke of developing atrial fibrillation and that's one of the very few downsides of doing a long-term endurance ath athletics mm. so there's atrial fibrillation there's also atrial flutters isn't there um would we say that one is less serious than the other and they sort of develop in terms of consequences uh, they're, they're two sides of the same coin, to be honest. They're, they're, they're uh, an abnormal rhythm within the, um, within the uh, top chambers of the heart. Mm. Okay, and that, that's the point at which people start to come to see you then? Yeah, so, I mean, these are both rhythms that can be quite effectively treated nowadays. They're not the same as palpitations, because we all get palpitations, don't we? Yeah, I mean, palpitations is a kind of lay term that means different things to different people. Palpitations is just a sensation of feeling your heart beat. And it can be due to anxiety, you know, panic attack, you'll get palpitations. It can be due to 
extra beats, ectopic beats, beats that are out of sync with the rest of the electric activity of the heart. And they're actually more common in athletes and don't usually mean anything. Mm-hmm. And very often people, just as they're drifting off to sleep, will hear feel a few extra thumps and bumps. That might be turned palpitations. And it's a normal phenomenon. It's not very seldom associated with any problems. So when when somebody comes or when somebody contacts you, um, what what is it that they've noticed then that causes them to uh, pick up the phone and ring? Well, it's, it's very variable. Um, it depends. It's different in different age groups. So the youngsters, um, I mean, there's certain red flags. So the, a red flag would be if you're exercising and you pass out. Uh, if you're running along, suddenly you lose consciousness. You have no memory of what happened, assuming you've not dripped or something. Um, that's a red flag. That needs definitely needs investigated because that can imply that there's an underlying significant heart problem. Now, that's different from you, you're exercising, you stop exercise, and then you pass out. If you go to the London Marathon or the Bristol 10K, you'll, people are dropping like flies after the race. Mm-hmm. That's normal. That's just sudden drop in your blood pressure and you're dehydrated. But if you're actually sprinting along and, then you pa- and you pass out while sprinting, that's very different. So that's a red flag, and that tends to be in the younger ones. Chest pain, tight chest pain, crushing chest pain on exercise should not be ignored. It's not always the heart, but certainly if you're of that right sort of age group, you know, if you're a middle-aged man particularly, or if you have a family history of heart problems, that shouldn't be ignored. So that, that needs checked up, like your friend you mentioned. And then quite a lot of of, uh, athletes I see present with palpitations. And sometimes there's nothing to worry about. Sometimes it's a standard little electrical short circuit in the heart, which we can get rid of very easily with a keyhole procedure. Sometimes it's atrial fibrillation. And sometimes it's more serious things. Sometimes it's a sign that there's an underlying heart muscle problem that they weren't aware of. So you you mentioned... um triathletes think they're normal and that the, you know, 12 or 14 hours of training is normal. And you hear them saying, well, I've only done six hours of training until you remind them that most in most sports, that's still considered to be a heavy load. Um, So extreme exercise combined with old ages or middle age, is that the reason why we, or do we, you might, you might be exploding a myth here for me. Do we, do you tend to see more atrial fibrillations and flutters in middle age men who've been involved with extreme exercise than you do in, say, men in, in the ages of under 40? Uh, yes. I mean, uh, atrial fibrillation, like much of life, is under genetic and environmental control. So if you've both parents had atrial fibrillation in their 40s, then you have a pretty high chance of getting it too. Um, if you've done a lot of endurance sport, you're more likely to get it. There's other things that can make it more likely as well. So it's very common in the rugby playing fraternity to down three cans of Red Bull and then run on the pitch. Mm-hmm. If you've any tendency to atrial fibrillation, that will bring it on. So common sense, you high dose caffeine or indeed alcohol can bring on your tendency to some of these arrhythmias. And so you have to learn what what does it in your particular case. So we don't we don't need to uh, be overly concerned as as middle aged athletes that there's a greater propensity for this just because of our age of involvement in the sport and um, continuing activity? No, I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's no point in that because if you, if you look at, if you had spent your, your life doing sport and exercise, mm-hmm. your likelihood of living a good, long, healthy life is much higher than the other guy who spent most of his life smoking, drinking and being overweight. Right. So, the overall benefits of exercise hugely outweigh yeah. the downsides, but you just have to be aware of the potential downsides and, and deal with it. And a lot of that is your individual risk factors. I, when I was doing my fitness instructor training, so this is quite a long time ago, we touched on some cardiac rehab. There was, they actually had a very good cardiac rehab um, part of Leeds City Council for people who had angina or they'd had heart issues, heart surgery. And so we had some really good um, practitioners that were teaching us there. And one of the things I learned is that certainly up to the age of 50, which 45, 50, which probably coincides with the menopause, um, men are at far greater risk of heart events than women just because due to hormones. But then that changes a little bit around the menopause. Is that still the same? Is that still the same um, after the 50s as well? Yeah. I mean, so women are protected by the hormones. Um, and uh, however, what that means is that women that have cardiac problems 
often are underdiagnosed. Uh, they, they present in a slightly different way from men. But, uh, and there's actually been relatively little research, in, particularly in the postmenopausal athlete, uh, compared to men. And there are people now doing that. So, yes, it is very much different. There, is, there are gender-related changes. Uh, the heart is different uh, between the genders. Um, we're not meant to say that men and women are different, but they certainly are from a heart point of view. Mm. Um, so men, when they do a lot of um, exercise, their hearts will thicken up to a much greater extent than women. Um, and there's differences in ethnic, diff- people of different ethnicity. So if you've got somebody from an Afro-Caribbean background, their heart will look different to somebody from a Caucasian background, as both on echocardiography and ultrasound scans and on an ECG. So in any sports cardiologist assessing a patient, they have to know they have to know gender, they have to know their exercise history, and they have to know their ethnicity. And that's actually quite complex now because me, not many of us are of a pure ethnicity. Uh, you know, I'm Scottish from for generations, but that's actually increasingly unusual. Many of us I've got a very cosmopolitan ethnic background, and that's that's a great thing to, to see. But it does make understanding the ECG changes that little bit more complex. Mm. And these sort of late stage in life, you know, I suppose middle age, late age, so definitely more prevalent in older people, definitely more prevalent in older men, but not uncommon. I mean, I know, I know athletes in their 20s and 30s that have had repeated problems with atrial fibrillations and they've had to undergo the little sort of um, ablate cardiac ablations and cardiac aversions and all sorts of things. And uh, sometimes it's taken several attempts to cauterize their nerves and, uh, and to stop all that. So it's, it's not, um, it's not exclusive to the middle-aged man, is it? No, no, it's not. And uh, certain sports are are higher risk than others. Uh, the ones who are doing a lot, you know, the rowers, for example, who are doing a huge amount of training, they, they're on the higher risk group. Uh, and also, as I said, size. So it seems to be the bigger athletes that tend to get this more than the, the smaller athletes for reasons that we don't fully understand. It may be to do with absolute cardiac size, but we're not quite sure. Yeah, I was involved in a couple of, I think I mentioned to you in our previous conversation, I was involved in a couple of pieces of research, one one with Gemma Parry-Williams and Sanjay Sharma in London, one with Peter Svoboda in Leeds. And and I know one of the things that Peter mentioned was that it, it seemed to be, um, they they seemed to notice more, more problems in athletes that were involved in sports where you're exerting force, a greater force. So rowers and cross-country skiers and cyclists where you're pushing against a load, whereas runners and swimmers, maybe not so much. Uh, have you have you noticed something similar to that? Um, it, it's quite difficult to tease it out, to be honest, um, to distinguish that from volume of training because your cross-country skiers and rowers traditionally do a huge volume of training, mm-hmm. uh, and whether it's the volume or, or not. Um, there's some interesting stuff coming out now on swimmers. You know, long-term endurance swimmers don't seem to thicken the heart in the same right. way that uh, runners do. So whether there's that's to do with the body cavity and the resistance uh, going through water, we, we don't know. But it's it, there's there's a lot more stuff that we still need to find out about. I, w- I wonder if the fact that swimmers are horizontal and therefore I guess the, the heart doesn't have to pump against gravity quite as much, does it? Might 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 be important. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Okay. Uh, let's talk about triathlon. I know you you said that you. Uh, in fact, when I was having a look at your bio. Um, it, it said, Dr. Stewart's a keen endurance exercise fan, and you mentioned that about doing your Ironman races, and he's competed more long-distance races and triathlons than is healthy. So I, I wanted to sort of clarify that question and say, well, what, what, what qualifies as healthy and unhealthy, just the number that you do or the actual uh, status no, of the event? I mean, that was slightly tongue-in-cheek. Um, there's, uh, there's an awful lot of benefits from doing a lot of sport, but it, it, it does take over your, your life, doesn't it? And mm-hmm. um, uh, the, I suppose it's the volume of exercise you do. There's no magic answer to that. There's the fact it interferes with the rest of life as well. That's uh, yeah, sure. family life and all the other things. That's, that's, I think, why a lot of people do running because you can run first thing in the morning, you can run the last thing at night, you can run for 30 minutes or six hours. Um, and that, it makes it very flexible compared to some other sports. But no, it's uh, the, it's back to this principle of the sweet spot of eight or nine hours. You know, the government would recommend that adults need to do at least half an hour, 
of moderate intensity physical exercise per day. And that's probably underplaying it because there is increased benefit if you do more than that. But moderate intensity can just be brisk walking. Uh, yeah, uh, and, and I think that's quite interesting because I see a lot of people out running, you know, as a coach, I, I, I sort of when I'm walking and I'm running and driving my car, I see a lot of people out that, that I think you perhaps shouldn't be running. You know, the, the, the actual effort that you're putting into run is probably too high for you. But I think a lot of people um, overlook the benefits to be had from brisk walking. Um, in terms of the whole, the, the holistic nature of it, the fact that you can keep going for longer. And if, if it was a calorie burning exercise, you can probably burn more calories running. You, you're definitely not going to the extremes of heart rate, which some people might experience when, when they're running, even at slow speeds. The human body is designed to be active and modern mm. lifestyles are, tend not to be active. Uh, and so we have to compensate for that. And there's also uh, many benefits, sort of mental benefits uh, of exercise. Uh, high blood pressure, one of the best treatments for high blood pressure is actually uh, regular exercise. So they've, they've looked at multiple center, multi-center trials. They've done meta-analysis of trials and found that regular exercise is just as effective as almost all the medications that we give first line for hypertension. But it's actually easier to dole out a medicine than to spend the 20 minutes encouraging somebody to exercise and then seeing them to check them how they're doing it and encouraging them and so on, mm. which is a great pity, I think. Well, and it's multifaceted, isn't it? Because we can see exercise as a silo on its own, or we can take the other things that come with exercise. So there was a, um, a bit of a trend a few years ago that I, I don't know whether you were involved in this or had colleagues that were prescribing the green gym or they were prescribing gym memberships rather than medication. And, uh, I've seen other research since about um, what happens to your mental health when you spend time in nature, when you walk through the woods, when you um, connect with nature rather than being connected to your phone. And so we, we take take the environment, we take the regular exercise, we take the de- disconnecting from gadgets, um, disconnecting from work stress for a little bit. It, it's it's more than just one thing on its own. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. You Maybe that's something that lockdown will do for us. We'll start to reevaluate life and think, well, maybe we do need to uh, set aside time for doing that sort of thing, That you know, what, what we're actually designed to do rather than spending all their time in front of screens. Mm. Interesting. Uh, we could talk about stress there then, because I guess um, it, it's a occurs to me and maybe this is just my my own bias thinking there but i've seen people who have had problems with heart uh trouble and, I, and i've you know my own mother died of cancer when it, when she was the same age as i am now and she she didn't smoke and she didn't drink but she was a she she did get a lot quite stressed out about a lot of stuff and i under often wonder what effect stress just total stress in our lives has on our health and the health of our vital organs and ability to fight off sort of serious disease yeah i mean there's there's a that's a huge topic isn't it it's much of it's out with my expertise but there's absolutely no doubt that that um we all live stressful and life's now everything's uh competing for our time uh, no matter what area of life you you work in or live in um and again, I think we maybe have to reassess life a little bit and think, well, what actually is important and what is less important. Do the, the bi- We talked about parasympathetic and sympathetic stress. So you, you, you touched on when you're in that fight or flight um, phase, you, you're generating cortisol, adrenaline and um, other um, stress hormones. It, is too much of that a bad? Because I know we need that. That was a body's defence mechanism, wasn't it, to protect us, to help us, help us run away from the saber-toothed tiger, or to to chase after some food, or um, repel invaders. But we also needed time to rest and digest. And if if we don't get enough resting and digesting, is the is the cumulative effect of those stress hormones also a bad thing for us for for our heart health? I think almost certainly it is. Yeah, I mean there is there, there is a particular. Uh, a cardiac condition called Takotsubo cardiomyopathy where it inevitably appears just after a, a, an episode of extreme stress. That's unusual, but uh, for example, if I am in the cardiac electrophysiology laboratory and I want to bring on an abnormal rhythm, I'll throw in some extra beats through the catheters, but if that doesn't work, I'll add in some adrenaline or equivalent of adrenaline, mm-hmm. and then often that works. 
So what what adrenaline does is it it's the technical term is is it, it um, decreases the refractory period of the heart muscle. It makes the heart muscle more irritable. So if you have a tendency to abnormal rhythms, then if you're running on adrenaline all the time, that tendency will be increased. Mm. Talked about uh, you mentioned dehydration there. Um, I've often wondered about this propensity of friends of mine and other people you hear that, that when they've got a hangover, they say, well, I'm going to go out and go for a run and sweat it out now. Uh, um, and I've wondered how healthy that is. I, I talked to, to somebody else who was involved in cardiac research about uh, what it is about athletes that, that have been training for months to go to the London Marathon or other city marathons or to do a triathlon, but then they pass away on the day of that event. And he mentioned that dehydration was probably one of those. He mentioned alcohol might have something in there as well that you sort of a bit relaxed and you've had a couple of beers the night before and then plus, plus, the, plus the adrenaline surge of the race. I, I just wonder occasionally what are the what are the conditions for which training is unhealthy for the heart? You know, so dehydration, um, well, being fatigued, I, having a hangover, recovery from illness. Yeah, I mean, most people who die during one of these runs, there's almost the most likely cause is an underlying undiagnosed heart problem, whether it right. be the of the coronary arteries or heart muscle disease or, mm. or a, a so-called channelopathy. That's the most common cause, and that's one of the arguments for screening. Um, and that's what cardiac risk in the young would, would point out. Um, there are certain principles, though. For example, if you have a viral infection, supposing you have a viral infection where your muscles are aching, you definitely should not be exercising. And the reason for that is some of the viruses that cause, for example, diarrhea, the Coxsackie virus, that affects not just the causing you to have diarrhea, but it, it makes your muscles ache, but also affects the myocardium, uh, the heart muscle. And so if you infect a bit of isolated heart muscle with Coxsackie virus, it will just not contract properly. And so it's foolish and foolhardy to be exercising when you've a uh, when you've got a flu-like illness. Head colds are a bit more debatable. The old story was if it's anything above the head, you're all right, and if it's below the head, you shouldn't. And there, I think there's probably some truth to that, although maybe not very much hard science. But hmm. certainly if you're achy and unwell, you shouldn't just try and run through it. That is foolhardy. Um, dehydration then, hangover. Like if you've got a hangover, you've been out. You've, you, let's say you've been for a run the night before, you meet a few friends, you have a few beers. Um, and then you get up the next morning and go for your next run. So you, you've still got some alcohol in your system and you're dehydrated and you're retired. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's common sense would say that's asking for trouble and it probably is. And also what you can get away with when you're 21 is quite different to what you can get away with when you're 61 or 51. Yeah. And I think you have to recognise that you know, life does change as you get older. Um, but it, in anybody, it's not, it's not wise advice to do that. And dehydration is just one of the facets. Alcohol is a, is a poison in itself. You know, if you have a tendency to an abnormal rhythm and you go out and drink too much, there's a much higher likelihood you'll have that arm abnormal rhythm after drinking too much. So when, when we talked about um, fatalities during sports events, in triathlon in particular, if you look at the stats for the athletes who've died during a triathlon, um, the majority of them seem to occur during the swim. So is that just because the swim is at the beginning of the race or is there something about immersion in cold water or restricted opportunities to breathe that that sort of, that swimming um, expects from you? Or is there something else that we're missing? Well, I think there's there's a few reasons why that happens. Um, swimming is a, it's an unusual at the start of a triathlon because what you've got is you're, you're bursting with adrenaline, your heart's racing. And then the first thing you do is dive into usually cold water mm -hmm. and you immerse your face and that stimulates the parasympathetic system. So you have this, uh, this tension between the sympathetic and parasympathetic. For people with some conditions, such as long QT syndrome, that can have a very high likelihood of bringing on a, a potentially lethal arrhythmia. But even for the rest of us, it, it can, uh, it can uh, cause a deleterious effect. So just being cool about it, um, try to be relaxed about it. And you know what it's like. It's, it, it's like uh, being in a washing machine. You, you get kicked in the face. Your goggles get kicked off. It's a bit mm -hmm. panicky. You're already hyped up for the race. So it's, it's, uh, I can see why that might happen. There's also curious conditions such as um, something called swimming-related pulmonary edema, where 
Uh, we're not quite sure why it happens. It's something to do with the heart relaxation, but maybe constrictive wetsuits don't help. That can cause you to um, uh, cough up frothy spit, and that can, that can actually be a fatal event. So uh, there are some things that happen in the swim that, that um, you've got to be careful of. Do you think the fact that um, in a lot of races, most people haven't effectively warmed up, so they're, they're almost going from naught to 60 in a few seconds rather than easing themselves in gently, which is what you'd normally do if you were setting off for a, a run from your house or if you were doing a swim session in the pool? Yeah, possibly. I mean, I'm not sure there's good evidence that that um, you're going going 50, 50 metres in and out just to get yourself warmed up is going to be helpful. I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, whenever I've been in that situation, I've wanted to conserve whatever energy I've got left mm. for the swim. But um, I mean, it does you know, it does make some sense to think that maybe warming up might be a good idea. I have a few more questions for you, Graham, if that's okay. Um, what I'm taking from this, in general, is that for the majority of people, exercise is a good thing. Too little exercise is a bad thing. Too much of an extreme exercise habit is probably not a good thing either but on balance more exercise is better so for any of our listeners who are at this point starting to think that you know i should perhaps i shouldn't be training for these endurance events i need to ease back we're definitely not saying that are we in bal- on balance you know as well as the mental health aspects and the, the social aspects and all of that other thing what you're currently doing for most people who are probably no, no more than that eight to ten hour sweet spot this is actually a good thing and we'd encourage them to continue regardless of their age yeah, I mean, generally that's true. Although I would say if there's any any alarm bells, um, such as family history or symptoms, they should be checked. Mm. It's a fairly easy thing to do. And, and nowadays there's quite a lot of sports cardiologists around. There, there, there didn't used to be very many at all, but there are some uh, charities that can do this. And just get, or even just a chat with the GP may be able to help. Some GPs have a, a big interest in, in exercise. Some have no interest in it, what you want is a GP who does exercise himself and chat, chat it through with them. As I say, there's fairly set criteria for screening that um, some countries would make you do. And uh, I personally, I think it's common sense. If you're going to spend a fortune on a, a carbon fibre bike, you want to make sure that your heart's up to it. That, that, that's that's my view. But uh, you, know, you, you might find something. That's the You've just got to be aware of that. <laughs> I've done a couple of events in France, and uh, it's a it's a requirement there um, when you turn up at the race to have a to have um, an ECG that's been signed off by a cardiologist within the thirty days before the race event, yeah. um, which which seems to put a lot of people out. You know, they seem to be kicking off that they have to do this, and it's a um, it, it's an imposition. You know, why? Didn't, for me, I think well, just if you've got to have one, why not have one? At least you'll be, at least you'll know in advance, one way or another. Even if you do find something, it's better to find it in in a test in a supervised way with with the right personnel around than in the middle of a in the middle of the swim. And and almost all these conditions can be treated, and the 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 bad outcomes can be prevented in almost all cases. So that's. So knowing doesn't condemn you to never exercise again. Um, I'll be an invalid from now on. Almost certainly it just makes it safer. Is there a point at which, so let's say you haven't had any symptoms. Um, would you still recommend that people go to get a, a checkup anyway? And it, or and is there an age where you'd say, actually, I think that's probably more of a must I think once you're once you're over forty, then the the biggest risk is coronary artery disease, and yeah, that's that's the commonest cause of death in men in this country or in the Western world, really. Um, so that that's the one you want to be sure of. Um, and there's you can you can do a questionnaire which will tell you a lot of it. So have you had your cholesterol checked, for example? If you haven't, it's probably not a bad idea. Your GP would do that. If your cholesterol is low, that's very reassuring. Have you a family history of heart attacks in young adults? If you have, absolutely, definitely should be getting checked yourself. Um, have you been a heavy smoker part of your life? Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's another thing that just, you know, is there something in there that's, that may cause you a problem? And the fact that you're good, um, you, I, I've seen you know, 10-hour triathletes who've had coronary artery disease and they've competed in lots of triathlons and then they have an event. 
and and so you know it's it's um, genetics triumphs environment generally. So if you've got a family strong family history, you should be getting checked. I would I would suggest. Right, and so um, just to nail this down, then over forty definitely start to look into this and maybe do the questionnaires. And if you've got any symptoms, maybe worth getting checked out. I'm a, I'm in my fifties now, so would you say that it's uh, it's actually something I should be penciling in every two to three years to go and get a test? As a yeah, matter of well, course, I mean, the, the European Society of Cardiology recommend every two years. Personally, I think that's probably overdoing it a bit. But it depends on the individual. If you've never had a check, it's probably worth having a check, mm. uh, and it will probably be normal. But probably, you know, that, that's that's it's not a binary yes no. You you there's a spectrum here, and you know I think it I think it's wise to just know your situation. Now that's controversial. Um, in some countries, it's it's absolutely standard. In the UK, we've tried several times to bring out that screening of athletes should be part of the national screening programme, and it's been turned down each time. And that's because um, they're, well, realistically, I think it's probably been because that it's very expensive, and it would be expensive. And you'd be screening an awful lot of normal people to pick up one person who's got a problem. Yeah. Uh, the biggest data set comes from Italy, and they showed in the Italian group that they could reduce the amount of on-field deaths by 90% through their screening program. Mm. Very impressive data. The downside of that is nowhere has really been able to reproduce that, and there's great debates about what that data meant. But I know from individual patients that there are some patients that we've picked up things where we've been able to treat them, cure them, and back to exercise with back to normal risk. And... You know, we're not talking about just having a slight headache. We're talking about quite nasty things going on there. So that's that's why I think it's personally, I think it's important. But be aware, this you may find that there's nothing wrong. You may find that there's a minor change. You may find that something definite, and it's it's not always clear cut. So any screening program may pick up something that it's difficult to interpret. You have to be aware of that. Quite interesting human reactions to this as well, because. I mentioned those two pieces of research and as a, as a, being a part of it myself, um, I suggested that I could, you know, with all the contacts I've got, I could recruit quite a number of um, candidates for them. And I asked some friends and one of my friends said, I don't want to know if I've got a heart problem, which now that's not how I think. I mean, he's welcome to his own, um, his own opinions on that. Personally, I'd rather know and be doing something preventative about it than find out, you know, when it caused me a lot more anguish and, and everybody else around me. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's quite a common uh, situation. Uh, the, I think particularly for the youngsters, um, if there's a familial condition, then you can pick it up in other people before there's a problem. So uh, and I work a lot in inherited cardiac disease, like heart muscle disease, cardiomyopathy, um, and um, there, it's if you are found of that diagnosis, it's not just about you; it may be about your children, and so and they may have it worse than you and not know about it. And so that's the sort of the other side of the mm-hmm. coin. And uh, so famously, then the broadcaster, Sir David Frost, he when he died, and he was an old man when he died, he had turned out of a condition called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and um, that should ideally have led to the family being screened, and and they weren't, and so his son in his uh, his thirties uh, went out for a run and and dropped dead, mm-hmm. and the family wouldn't mind me saying this because they've raised a lot of money through the British Heart Foundation for something called the Miles Frost Foundation to raise money to screen for these things. And um, and the whole aim is that that should not happen again. So if one family member is found of this condition, that is looked for in others. Uh, and often these things present on exercise because that's when the heart is stressed. I uh, remember a few years ago, there was a, a fell runner who was a Jew, a Jew athlete also. I, I think his name was John Brown, but I, I stand to be corrected. But he, he passed away. I think he passed away in his sleep. And uh, some of my friends who were fell runners said, you know, um, he, he was in the Great Britain team. If he'd been in the Italian team, he'd have been screened for that and they would have found it before it, it resulted in his death, um, which supports what you were just saying about the sort of screening process in different countries. Possibly. I mean, so, some things, the sort of thing that comes with that can sometimes be picked up and sometimes it can't be picked up. You have to mm. do special tests for it. So it's, it's, uh, it can be difficult sometimes. Mm. You've mentioned 
several times about common sense. So I, I always like to leave our listeners with an action plan of things that they can do. So are you able to give us some of the common sense actions that we can take, particularly as we're getting older, particularly as we continue to be involved in extreme exercise, to look after our hearts? Um, it, I don't mind if you reiterate some of the standard things like avoiding junk food and too much fatty food and all of that other stuff, but um, it, it, I don't think it ever harms to have a, a somebody like yourself reiterating what the common sense action points are. Yeah, well, common sense things. Uh, first of all, if you've got symptoms during exercise, get them checked out. By that, I mean particularly palpitations, significant chest pain, fainting. Don't ignore them. Don't put them to one side. Get them checked out. It may be nothing to do with your heart. Maybe just a bit of indigestion, but get it checked out. Second thing, if you're unwell, don't go and do your exercise. If you've got a virus, don't exercise. It's just not worth the risk. It could permanently damage the heart. It could lead to potentially dangerous arrhythmia. You might get away with it, but you might not. Um, can, I just, can I just jump in there, actually? I'll, I'll, yep. I'll let you finish off with these points because um, particularly as we're talking now and we're you know, still exiting the COVID um, virus thing. And there, there'll probably be some listeners who've had some forms of uh, coronavirus at different stages. So we can we maybe just add a little bit on relating to that at the end, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, with COVID, um, there, there are fairly clear criteria now that have been worked out on a consensus basis for professional sportsmen as to how you can say when they can get back to a competitive sport. Um, for most people, though, um, there doesn't seem to be a major problem. If you're back feeling back to normal, then you probably are back to normal. Mm. Um, there doesn't seem to be a huge lot of, of sequelae from, from the vast majority, although clearly at the time there can be. The heart can be affected at the time. Okay. Um, right, so we've got, we've got um, if you've got symptoms, exercise and get checked up. If you're unwell with a virus, don't exercise. Those are your first two. Yeah. Well, you mentioned diet, and that's sensible. So... Um, if you're eating junk food, so I'm Glaswegian there, we, we live in deep fried Mars bars and McDonald's, <laughs> that is a bad diet for anybody. And it's certainly a bad diet if you're going to drive your body, uh, hard on exercise. So the so-called Mediterranean diet, fruit, vegetables, pulses is good for blood vessels and it's good for, for high blood pressure. It's good for reducing the likelihood of developing coronary artery disease. So that's a, that's a good thing to do. Um, you know, treat your body properly. The way you, you treat a, a top car or motorbike or whatever, your bicycle, look after it and it will stay in good stead. And the, the final thing probably is if there's a family history of a problem, particularly in a young adult or somebody during exercise, get yourself checked out. That's important. That's a red flag that you should be aware of. You... Um... Do you get involved with heart rate variability? It's uh, growing in popularity now amongst athletes to track that. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's, it's a useful training tool. Um, you know, there's uh, increasingly the, you know, the watches and the uh, garments of this world, et cetera, they, they can tell you heart rate variability. And I think it's, it's helpful. I imagine coaches can find it helpful. It tells you if you've been doing a bit too much. There's lots of other things can affect it. But yeah, I think, I think on, on balance, it, it, it reflects the autonomic and, and uh, sympathetic uh, and parasympathetic nervous systems affect on heart rate. So, yes, I think it's, it's quite a useful tool. I, uh, do you mind if I add, add um, something to your list then, Graham? <laughs> I, I mean, you're the expert on this, but we have talked about it a little bit today. And for me, I and you talked about how maybe the last 12 months of our lives have, have been changed and maybe this is something we can learn is the importance of disconnecting a little bit the importance of finding some way of getting out of the stressful situations in your life meditating breathing exercises taking a walk in in amongst nature without any interference from from that i i feel like a lot of the people i come up against are hard charging type a personalities who are push 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 all the time and they're never relaxing they feel guilty if they're doing it i i can't help but feel that their whole balance of life and health long-term health would be would be better if they engaged in some of those parasympathetic practices yeah no i think that's absolutely right again that's back to the common sense issue isn't it uh, it's been fascinating graham thank you I, i'm 
pleased that that my knowledge on the heart is is actually I think I think it's okay. So, um, but of course, I would always defer to somebody like yourself if uh, if we needed to dish out um, uh, advice in a serious situation. But I, I like the the common sense approach. It always when when you talk to the people at the top of the field, regardless of what it is, it comes back to getting the basics right and and just doing Absolutely. the things that you know that perhaps intuitive that you might gloss over because it's that can't be that simple and the overall message should be that actually exercise you're doing yourself far more good than harm yeah well that's probably a good place to finish then yeah absolutely well professor graham stewart top cardiologist we'll be putting all of your details in i don't know whether that'll going to mean an influx of patients or people with questions for you but uh, um certainly I, i'm sure that you've got some uh, papers out there and some um, videos and things that we could direct the listeners to. And I, I would like to get some of the links to um, maybe the Miles Frost Foundation, some of the other things you talked about as well um, to, to, to share with people. So thank you once again for your time today. I've really appreciated the conversation. No problem. Thank you to Graham for being on this week's High Performance Human podcast. You can find links to everything we chatted about in the show notes below. Just a reminder that if you are interested in being part of our new High Performance Human course, please email beth at thetriathloncoach.com or look for the link in the show notes below. So that's all for this week. Thanks again for being here and we'll be back in another seven days time with more great guests. But for now, stay healthy and stay focused on being a high performance human in every aspect of your life.